hold that pitcher, or drop him? We'll ask Jason Collette, Roto-Wire fantasy baseball writer, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, May the 26th. It's show number 29 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great show for you. We'll talk with Roto-Wire fantasy baseball writer Jason Collette about how to decide whether to keep or drop underperforming pitchers, what makes a pitcher interesting to analyze. Matt Shoemaker, Steven Strasburg, and Shelby Miller go under the microscope, as well as some studs and duds and much more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Rocky shortstop prospect Trevor Story. And in our Frequent Flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Mike Wright, Chad Bettis, and Peter O'Brien. It's another Big Tuesday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We're past the Memorial Day weekend. Things are heating up. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday edition, our feature expert interview with Rotowire fantasy baseball writer Jason Collette. Jason, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. Uh, we're just crashed through the uh, holiday weekend up here in Canada. I know you guys have just finished the Memorial Day weekend down in the States, so at this point, it uh, looks like the season will start heating up along with the weather. Uh, how are your teams doing? Uh, not too bad. Uh, it, really, the injuries have been the biggest problem. In tout wars, you know, last year was not a good year for me because a lot of injuries, and this year, pick it up right where I left off. Although, this year, I, I'm, I've been anywhere from first to fifth in AL tout, but I have something like $70 of my draft day is tied up on the disabled list. Cobb, Holland. Uh, Laurie, uh, Saunders, and uh, listen, uh, five guys, and Jaso. There's my five guys. So it's been really tough, and uh, I just want these guys to come back. I'm just trying to hold it together and, and do what I can. At least the saves have worked out. Getting Andrew Miller, Luke Gregerson, and Brett Cecil as my three closers, uh, I'm leading the league in saves. It's working out well. That's about the only thing that's working out well. Well, if you're if you're running around between first and fifth with all those injuries, that that's you got to be pretty pleased with that. Although, of course, Cobb won't be coming back. I drafted him in my American League uh, home league, and uh, that took a chance, spent ten bucks at draft, thinking you know maybe the injury's not so bad. It turned out to be really bad, and and uh, I know that uh, Jaso, uh, Alex Cobb. And uh, Desmond Jennings, they all s- went into spring training or came out of spring training, I guess, with sort of mildly bothersome injuries, and they all turned into like long-term things. It's been it's been crazy. They've been really dodgy with injuries this year. I mean, Cobb was a day to day. Oh, I'm fine. If people, I mean, he actually threw three innings on the last day that he pitched, and he said he felt soreness before. But he went ahead and threw 45 pitches. Uh, Desmond Jennings ended last year with knee soreness. Was actually he wasn't hitting too well this year, but he was running on the base pass, which was a great sign. And then all of a sudden, his knee was sore. And he was day to day, and now he's on the 15 day disabled list. And as of yesterday, uh, being Sunday the 24th, there is quote unquote no timetable for his return. And John Jaso was day-to-day with a sore wrist. There was no break. There's no fracture. Then he goes to 15. Then he's on the 60-day disabled list. And here we are. You know, he's due off the 60-day on June 9th and on May 24th. No timetable for his return. 
so it's, it's really frustrating, especially with a guy like Jason in an OBP league like Tout. I spent money on him because I knew he was going to get on base, and I've had one plate appearance from him. Good thing he got on base. I mean, yeah. At least that helped, but because he walked in the first plate appearance of the season, that's all I have from him. Uh, OBP of a thousand is good. Uh, one plate appearance maybe not so good. The Rays have a reputation of being very canny about how they operate their team. They're always looking for edges wherever they can find them. Could the unwillingness to be more transparent about injuries be a part of any kind of management plan to keep the other teams in the AL East and across baseball guessing as to their intentions? You know, maybe, but it's not like they have crazy depth to call up. I mean, right now they're getting a, a you know a renaissance performance from David DeJesus right now, who was they you know they weren't even sure he was going to make the club. They were trying to trade him, and he's had a great performance for him this year. They had to call up Joey Butler, a quad A player who's been decent for him, and they and they keep calling up pitchers and sending down pitchers on a daily basis right now just to give uh, you know, the rotation a break. They've had to try to use Erasmus Ramirez that hasn't worked out uh, terribly well. The bullpen has been heavily leveraged, uh, and that's going to have to be addressed at some point. Matt Moore coming back is going to take Ramirez out of the rotation and likely to the pen where that'll help. Um, but that's still a few weeks off. Is there any real expectation that Matt Moore can come back strong? Uh, he was obviously uh, really in trouble when he went into the Tommy John situation with control. Uh, I presume that they're expecting that his control will improve with the surgery, but how, is there any sort of reason to be confident or optimistic that he's going to come back and be effective relatively quickly? All he has to do is be better than Erasmus Ramirez. I mean, let's be honest, and that's not really a high bar. But, I, I mean, when you when you look at him pre-injury, because the, the velocity is what I want to see, because he was only 89, 91, sometimes 92, uh, heading into that injury, and that's not where Matt Moore needs to be. I, I want to see velocity. He could be effectively wild. If you look back in his first season and a half in the majors when he did struggle with command, but with the velocity that he was using, he was still able to be effective and, and, and you know, miss bats, get strikeouts. His whip was never pretty, but he stranded runners, and that could work on. So I haven't seen anything about velocity because all he's done right now is some simulated starts, so he hasn't been uh, officially sent out for a rehab assignment yet, right. and that's when we'll start hearing the scouting reports on guns and such. You have a column at rotowire.com, Jason, called Colette Calls. And in the, an article recently, you mentioned that you really enjoy reading and writing pitcher analysis. What is it about pitchers that makes them so interesting to you, both to read about and to write about? It's because of the data at hand. There's, there's, there's more stuff for us to play with. I mean, there's sites like Brooks Baseball. Uh, dot net and, and baseballsavant.com that do an excellent job of taking the the data that you get from the pitch FX feed and turning it into something graphical that makes sense to you. Sometimes you know negative six point six x some of that stuff you, for ninety nine point nine percent of baseball fans means nothing. But if you can see what it looks like, that's one thing. And then. It's because just the way the video is processed, the way we see it on TV, a lot of stuff that are, that are struggling batters, you know, you can see leaky hips if guys are bailing out too early or not opening up early enough, those kind of things because of the way that the game is presented. But we don't, it would be awesome if we had to opt in and see the sideways view of batters so we can see who's overstriding or not striding enough or who's too late to the ball. We don't get that view unless it's something good. If you go, if you think about the games that you're watching, the only time we see that side view of a baseball player is when they hit a home run. So I don't want to see that. I want to see when they're struggling. And for pitchers, we do see that. We can see pitchers falling off to the left, falling off to the right, opening up too early, not opening up early enough. We can see more just the way the game is presented in itself and then the availability of data. And plus, I used to pitch when I played prep ball 
I pitched, so pitching has always been uh, more appealing to me because I was a much better pitcher than I was a hitter. <laughs> and uh, I, I once took a, a stadium tour where we got to look at the video area where they work with the pitchers and the hitters with the advanced video, and one of the views that we saw was they could somehow use the computer to overlay the same player from exactly the same perspective so that he could see this is you when you're doing well, this is you when you're not doing well, and because because it was an overlay, he could see that his lead foot was landing maybe three inches shorter on the downslope of the mound than when he was doing well, and it was a very revealing way to look at a, a batter or a pitcher's body movements through the course of delivering a pitch or swinging the bat. And I think sometime down the road, I hope we get to see that as well, because it certainly is going to open up a huge vein of possibility for figuring out why players are doing well or poorly. The teams have access to all this stuff. It's just the, the public access to it. And in fact, uh, if Trevor Bauer start on Sunday the 24th, he talked about uh, he recognized something going down in the tunnel to watch some video that he was doing wrong his first time through the lineup and came out and made the correction the second time to the lineup uh, in his most recent win against uh, Cincinnati. So, you know, these guys can do it within the game. They have, and you know the video feeds are there because we've seen, uh, the, the scouts will present it. You've seen it at different things. So these these, feed, these feeds are there, and, and frankly, I would be willing to pay money for that. You know, it's kind of like the NFL red zone or the NHL or whatever they call the NHL version of it. I would be willing to pay money to get specific camera views for baseball so I can look at batters from the side or I can see a pitcher from the side and those types of things because there's a lot of value in that. And I think that day is coming quicker than we think. Uh, there are already some uh, sports operations here in Canada on the on these hockey uh, broadcasts, not on TV yet, but on your computer, where you can choose to watch the entire game from a camera in the rafters, for instance, to watch the flow of the game in a completely different way than you're used to seeing it. And from my perspective, a way I prefer to see it because I like seeing the context rather than a close-up of a guy getting an elbow in the chops. Oh, exactly. I mean, it's for football. I love watching the end zone view. I like seeing the whole play open up. And then from a baseball perspective, and I like I don't even need to sit behind home plate. I like sitting up above there because I like looking for uh, defensive positioning. Where are guys being positioned? You know, depth of ball, I really prefer. I don't like sitting down the sidelines. I don't need to sit behind home plate. But I do love, you know, all my years in Tampa Bay and being in the press box, it's on the third level. It was a great view because I could really see defensive positioning, things you don't really get a true feel for when you're watching it on TV unless they talk about it or showcase it, especially outfield positioning. You don't really see how much outfield positioning happens in a game unless you're at it live. I really enjoy that high behind home plate view. The last game I went to, I took my daughter to see the Red Sox. She's a fan. And we were in the fifth deck at Skydome, or Roger Centers, they now call it. And we were within about 10 feet of directly back of the dish. And it's the best place to watch a baseball game as far as I'm concerned. And I'll, I'll go with you as well as football too. From directly behind the goalposts, I remember seeing a game in Detroit, uh, it was the the uh, uh, Barry Sanders era, and whenever they were down in their own end zone and moving away from you, it was so exciting to watch how the line play progressed to see how he was getting those big holes. He got a lot of credit for being a good running back, but boy, oh boy, he had some nice holes to open. That was a really good line, and being able to see that gives you, I think, gives you a better comprehension of the total game. Absolutely, absolutely. I think if we think... If you think about the postseason, baseball postseason, they do a great job on MLB.com where you can go in and say, okay, I want to watch the game. You get to choose how you want to watch the game. Absolutely. And I, I, that's the next level to me. I mean, I don't really – I prefer watching 
games on my devices versus my television because of the control. If I want to rewind, if I want to go grab a screen capture of, of, of something that's happened, if I need to you know, slow things down, I can do that on my device on your on your television. Sure, you can with a DVR and such, but I can't screen cap from my television and tweet out something that I, that I'm seeing. But I love being able to play with the camera angles and be like. I want to watch from behind. The, I want to watch from the catcher's point of view. I want to watch from the center field cam. The last thing I want to do is watch the offset camera. I mean, Toronto does a great job with the center field cam. Uh, Tampa Bay does. Boston does. But some of these stadiums that insist on using that off-center cam drive me crazy. I mean, that's it's just awful camera. At Rotowire, when you were talking about uh, why you like uh, pitching, you were actually talking about the Angels' Matt Shoemaker, who's off to a rough start this season. You noted, I think, his ERA is over six, a whip around 125. Pretty brutal for modern fantasy purposes. But he's got a 23% strikeout rate, which isn't too shabby, uh, better than Madison Bumgarner and David Price at the time, and his 4.8% walk rate is top 20. So what has gone so horribly wrong for Matt Shoemaker, and can he correct it? You know, when I when I broke this down, because, again, the, the strikeout rate's there. If you want to use strikeout rate minus walk rate, it, it's one of the top 20 in the league. He doesn't walk anybody. The 125 whip is still serviceable. It's still good. Uh, but then it's everything. It's the home runs, and, and especially this month. He's given up multiple home runs in every start during May, uh, and that's what's killed. He's given up uh, home runs in six of his eight starts. And when you break down the data, and if you, if you picture Matt, what's unique about Matt Schumacher is he pitches like a Japanese pitcher. He has average velocity, but he really leans on his forkball, and he works up and down in the zone. So if you look at the guys that use a splitter 20% or more, and Jeff Sullivan from Fangraphs did an article of this, and it was all the Japanese pitchers, and then Matt Shoemaker. Uh, and then when you look at the home runs issue, you may think, okay, the guy throws 90. Maybe he's leaving fastballs up. Just about uh, seven of his home runs, seven of the home runs he's allowed up have been splitters up in the zone. Uh, and that's, these are mistakes he wasn't making last year. Everything else, if you look at all the other metrics on this guy, the fastball is just as good as it was last year by, by any metric you want to look at. Uh, everything else he's doing, velocity, all of it is right there where it was last year. It's the splitter, and he's leaving it up in the zone. And when I see a guy leaving stuff up like that, that's a mechanical thing. Uh, and the, you look at that, you're like, okay, the stri- he's still getting the swings and misses overall, the strikeout rate, but if he's leaving the splitter up in the zone, that's something that can be corrected. So you know, I've, I've made two trade offers for Matt Shoemaker, and, and one nailed out. Larry Schechter owns him, wasn't able to get him. Larry's a smart player. Yeah. Uh, I tried to get him in my local league, and only because the guy was already thin on starting pitching, uh, he wasn't willing to make uh, pull the, the trigger on him yet. But I did make two offers out there on him because I think this is correctable. You go back and look at last year with Shoemaker, uh, he had some of the stuff, look at his, sw- his swing and miss rate was higher than guys like Alex Cobb. Uh, who has a very high swing and miss rate. So I mean, the, he lines up. The, he doesn't have the name value of some of these other guys, but his production has been there at times, and I think this is something that could be correctable, and he can provide value the rest of the season. Yeah, and he's one of those kind of players that, unfortunately, a lot of his owners who might not realize that this bad stretch is caused by a mechanical issue, they don't understand why it's happening at all, they just remember that last year he was really, really good, and they're willing to wait out a guy who was really, really good to see if he can be really, really good again, which kind of interferes with getting a trade made. Well, you know, I'll bring his name up again. If we, think, I don't know if it was last year or the year prior, but there was a May uh, that Hisashi Iwakuma was downright awful. Uh, I, maybe it was May 2013, but he was giving up home runs left and right. His ERA was getting close to six. I just remember uh, like a four-game stretch where he was getting pounded. And then like the rest of the season, he was 
nearly unhittable. Right. Now, I'm not saying Shoemaker is Iwakuma, but I'm saying here's a guy that's gotten off to a bad start and then doubled down on the pain in May, and then could turn it around. Their stuff's pretty similar. So that's kind of where I'm looking at for hope, saying, okay, if Iwakuma can turn around in May where he was given a home runs left and right, maybe a guy with the same profile like Shoemaker can do the same. That's super interesting. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Jason Collette from Road to Wire and Fangraphs, a podcast. Uh, you also have a really active Twitter feed, one of the most active amongst all the guys I follow, and it's a really good Twitter feed. I'm going to recommend everybody sign up to follow at Jason Collette, two L's, two T's. Uh, you again got deep into the numbers for Steven Strasburg. Even in 140 characters, you managed to get some depth, and you noted some worrying trends. Uh, what did you see when you looked at the pitch-type numbers for Steven Strasburg? Um, yeah, here's the thing: the, if you watch a Steven Strasburg start, the velocity is still there. So this isn't a, this isn't a velo issue where a guy all of a sudden he's losing two or three miles an hour, and then everything else is too hittable. The velo is right in line where it was. It's it's the secondary pitches and, and where he, the swing and miss rate. And he went from a guy overall whose swing and miss rate on uh, swing and strike rate was a top twenty rate last year. Now he's in the bottom 20 in, in wow. one season. And when you look at the secondary stuff, that's where it's really falling off. If you picture uh, Steven Strasburg started from 2013 or 2014, you know, you're looking at that, that changeup that looked like a wiffle ball and that curveball that would just go, you know, stomach to knee or chest to knees. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. And, and that's not what you're seeing this year. I mean, the, the swing and miss rate on his changeup has been half. It used to be a 26% whiff rate, down to 13%. The breaking ball around from, went from 20 down to around 11. And, you know, there was this stuff early on about the, you know, maybe he'd see a chiropractor, get all that stuff. Right. Out. There's something mechanical going on here, too, uh, with him because he's not getting the finish on his pitches, kind of like Shoemaker. And you look at where, where his pitches are ending up, and these changeups and breaking balls are ending up up in the zone to the point where in pitchers' counts, his, his hit rate in pitchers' counts is higher than it is in hitters' counts. And that, that's, that's nearly impossible to do when you're looking at, okay, as a pitcher, you're up one and two. This guy's just trying to protect the zone and you're giving up a 41% hit rate in those situations, that can't happen. Because Steven Strasburg has been a Tommy John recovery guy, are you, are you at all extra concerned that there might be something uh, elbow-related in Steven Strasburg's uh, difficulties that maybe isn't the case when you're looking at a Matt Shoemaker? Uh, not really. I'm not terribly concerned about, with anything. I just think overall it's a, it's a mechanical process. I don't think he's compensating for anything when I see it. It's just a matter of, like your car. He's out of alignment. He needs to be realigned. Before we move on, why is your Twitter avatar Cletus the Bucktooth Hillbilly from The Simpsons? <laughs> that goes back to uh, Paul Spore and I, uh, and Clay Buckholz. Uh, Clay Buckholz is the guy, you know, Paul and I have known each other for a very long time, and Paul and I agree on a lot of stuff. Uh, Clay Buckholz is the one thing that he and I are never going to see eye to eye on. I am a Clay Buckholz believer. He hates him, and he calls him Cletus the Slack-Jawed Yokel uh, <laughs> because of the greasy hair and everything. And so I, and after the, the opening day start when he shut down Philadelphia, and so I changed my Twitter, Twitter avatar to Cletus. And if you ever see me do hashtag Team Cletus, it's when Buckholz is on a roll, uh, and that's why my avatar is Cletus the Slack-Jawed Yokel. Uh, Buckholz looks like he got a haircut of some kind. The last time I saw him on the mound, it didn't, you couldn't even see hair out the back of his cap. Yeah, if you think back to the Major League movie where they said Charlie Sheen got a haircut with a Vegematic, that's kind of what Clay Buckholz looks like right now. He, he, <laughs> he did the sides of his hair uh, and a little bit of the back, so it's not that, that greasy look anymore, but he's still going to be Cletus to me, especially if he keeps pitching like he has of late. 
<laughs> with all the money these guys have, wouldn't you think they could find somebody who could give them a decent haircut? You would think. Uh, as somebody who's a little follically challenged these days, I'm a little jealous of some of the hair these guys have, especially Bryce Harper's hair. I would love that mane uh, of hair. But, yeah, yeah this, this Clay Buckles thing has been ridiculous, especially when we've got uh, you know Brian Mattis being suspended for foreign substance uh, and Will Smith being suspended for foreign substance. And, he, and Clay Buckles, he, he's got that sweaty hair going on inside Dome. When he pitches the Tropicana, he's got water through his hair. There's no secret why he's doing that. You can rub your hand through your hair, you pick up the rosin bag, wipe a little sunscreen off your arm, and voila, you've got some nice tackiness for a baseball. Uh, so, you know, but these guys, the hairstyles, everybody's got to be their own individual. I'm, I'm for that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Dav with Jason Collette. And Jason, at Rotowire, you also covered Shelby Miller of the Braves. And at the time you wrote the piece, you noted that he had just thrown his second Maddox of the season. And Maddox is an adjective describing a particular kind of performance. So first tell us what a Maddox is, and then tell us what Shelby Miller is doing so right. Sure, the Maddox is throwing a complete game with fewer than 100 pitches because Greg Maddox did that more than anyone else, and Shelby Miller has done two of those in the month of May. Uh, when you look at when you look at Shelby Miller, you know a lot of people. Well, you, the whole St. Louis traded him, and, and then go oh, they got Michael Walker, and Michael Walker is doing good this year, and Michael Walker did good in the postseason a couple of years ago. But if you talk to scouts, there were a lot of them that said, you know, I still like Miller better, and I like Walker. And so when, you, when Atlanta, obviously they did, if they're going to get four years of control of Miller over one year of Hayward, it was a no-brainer trade to make. And for him uh, and Roger McDowell, it was a really big part of this process, but what they did to Miller to change him. And Miller was a guy that was primarily a four-seam four fastball guy, and they said, you know what, we're going to throw two-seamers, and, and we're going to, we're going to uh, work more of a cutter in for you, and we're going to change the way you use it. So there's been a change of process here, and sometimes when we see uh, these change in process, guys adding new pitches, and things the first time around the league, they can do well. And in Miller's case, he's done extremely well with it, um, with the recipe. And he's actually I mean, changing from a four-seam to a two-seam and going to a cutter, you would, would normally reduce your strikeout rate because neither of those pitches are designed to strikeout pitches, but Miller's striking out more guys because he's, got, he's keeping batters guessing what's coming out of his hand. Um, with that case. So I'm, uh, let's see what happens the second time around because you can look at a couple of things. His hit rate is really suppressed. His strand rate is really suppressed. That stuff's got to normalize out. Uh, but the change in process has been really good for him. And now it's time for the league to adjust because there's only so much. A pitcher can't just pick up a new pitch in the middle of the season and say, okay, I'm going to start throwing a screw knuckle change and let's see what happens now. So he's made his adjustment. Now it's time for the league to say, okay, I know what's happening. Let's see what happens. To his credit, though, He's already faced some of these teams multiple times, including the Marlins, who actually have one of the better hitting offenses in baseball, despite their record. That's mostly a pitching problem, but team batting average, they're in the top ten, and he's done better against the Marlins when he's faced them multiple times, and there's two or three other teams that he's already faced multiple times, and he's done better the second time around. That's a really interesting, deep stat. When When you're looking around at pitchers, how do you choose which guys you're interested in? Uh, for me, I'm always looking at guys, you know, that have they're coming off a really bad years. You know, when you look at one of the reasons I like Buckholz, I, I traded for Buckholz in one of my uh, one of my home leagues a few weeks ago. Get up Nate Carnes and uh, Raul Mondesi Jr. because I thought Buckholz had pretty much hit rock bottom. Okay, now it's time to go by. Let's look at things. I, I, I I'm a big fan of swinging strike rate. I, I, you know, the fewer balls put in the play, the better for me. I like those things. I'm, I'm also a big fan of the new pitch. I like to see guys that are adding new things, if especially when they're swinging miss pitches. Guys that are adding a split finger. Guys that are working on the change up. 
uh, you know, those types of things. I'm a big fan of those types, and, and it's worked out fairly well this year. Uh, Joe Kelly, standing aside, who got bombed again today. I picked him up for $2 in the league, thinking cheap strikeouts. And he's getting the strikeouts, but he's giving up runs left and right because uh, he made the switch from the two-seamer to the four-seam fastball. So he was getting a lot of strikeouts, but um, he's also been more hittable this year. You wrote a little earlier about how to make the call on whether or not to cut a underperforming pitcher versus trusting him to straighten out whatever's ailing him. And we've been talking about Clay Buckholz, and he was one of the examples of a pitcher you would hold. And as you say, you actually went out and acquired him in some leagues. And Chris Tillman was an example of a pitcher whose struggles look more real and therefore worth dumping rather than holding on to and waiting for the recovery. Their surface stats at the time, almost identical. So what is the thinking when you're looking at two pretty similar pitchers? I mean, you have to go, uh, obviously, beyond the surface stats. With the two of them, their ERA and their ratios were just awful, uh, horrendous. But then you go and say, okay, let's look at let's look at strikeout rates and walk rates. And Buckholz actually had good rates in both. He was striking out 26 27% of the guys he was facing, walking 6 or 7. Good ratios. Chris Tillman was in the mid-teens, which is terrible. I mean, the league average for starting pitchers, 19 to 20% strikeout rate. He was 15 to 60. So he's already below average there, and he was walking a ton. At the time, he was walking 12% of the guys he was facing. Uh, and then you go watch Chris Tillman, and it doesn't look anything like the Chris Tillman last year. This is a guy that's throwing the ball towards home plate, praying that it misses a bat. I mean, it, it looks nothing like the Chris Tillman that we saw in 2013 and 2014. Then you can look at, you know, we can look at XERA. And say, okay, you know, look at Buckholz. It was good. You look at Tillman, and he earned it. I mean, it wasn't like he was getting killed in, uh, with bad luck. His hit rate, his strand rate, was pretty much in line with his career average. He was earning his bad ERA. Whereas Buckholz, you know, you look at his ERA, it was like half of what his real ERA was. And you're like, okay, buying opportunity. Whereas, and then this is why I always you can look at stats only so much, but then you got to sit down and watch video, and you can watch a Buckholz start and see the swings and misses that he was getting in good lineups, and then watch a Chris Tillman start and say, yeah, he has no idea where that baseball is going. So make the buy on Buckholz, let somebody else make the buy on Tillman's name, and Tillman still hasn't turned it around. When you're watching a pitcher uh, live uh, live on TV, what are you looking for? Uh, when I'm watching a pitcher live on TV, I'm checking. I'm really checking velocity. My my favorite thing to do is where the catcher sets up and where the ball ends up. That, that is my favorite thing to do. I want to see where that catcher's calling for that ball and where the pitcher ends up locating it. And if I see a lot of catcher glove movement, I know the guy's struggling with command. Uh, and I think you know, I'm thinking back again. Today's Monday, so I'm talking yesterday's game. Taiwan Walker start against uh, Toronto. There's a home run that Encarnacion hit, and I think it landed in the fifth deck of, of Rogers Center. But to Taiwan Walker's credit, he put the ball exactly where Wellington Castillo called for it. So I'm not going to blame Walker for giving up the home run because the call was inside fastball, and Castillo set up right there. That glove never moved, and that ball never – I don't know if it landed yet. Uh, but that's why I'm kind of looking for – okay, if this guy's hitting the spots, maybe there's hope. But if I see a catcher's reaching left, right, up, down for everything, then I'm worried. You also look at hitters, of course. You're not just a pitching-only guy. Uh, and you recently tweeted on your account, at Jason Collette, uh, two L's, two T's, that Shinsu Chu of the Rangers is having a pretty impressive May. Uh, some other people have noticed as well. Give us the scoop on what you think Shinsu Chu is doing right. Yeah, that's another example. You look at April, uh, .096 batting average. Uh, OBP was maybe a buck fifty, slugging two twenty, uh, was striking out a ton. Uh, and that was that was rock bottom for him, uh, and that was a buying opportunity. If, if you missed it, I'm, I'm sorry, but when you look at a guy 
with career numbers that Shin Chu was put up and you see what he did in April, that, that's when you start buying them. Uh, if I didn't already own him in a league, I would have been out there getting him. But I already had Chu in the two leagues that I would have had a shot at him uh, on that. But you see, he's, he's hitting with power. I mean, he did have, I forgot the specific injury, but there was something he was dealing with in spring training that kind of lingered into the start of the season. Uh, and that's obviously behind him because you know, he's hitting with the power now. Strikeouts are still going to be an issue for him. The one thing that kind of concerns me, he doesn't run anymore. Uh, and he's not that old where he should be losing that phase of his game. He used to be a 20-20 threat. Uh, he doesn't have the – I don't even think he has a stolen base attempt yet. But he's hitting with power, and he's right there. Uh, Prince Fielder's doing a monster job behind him, so he's right in fielders can drive him in a lot. So uh, with Chu, it's just a matter of – it looks like he's healthy at the plate now uh, versus trying to play through what was bothering him in March and April. And, again, when you see a guy rock bottom like that, Who's got the? Who has the proven track record of being successful? Go grab them. But how much stock do you think fantasy owners should put in one hot month? You mentioned that Chu started off terribly, then uh, in April, and then in May he bounces back and has this tremendous month. How should an owner look at those two months and say that one's for real, that one's not for real? You only have six months, so you only have so much time with it. I think. You know, you, you've got to look at the larger body of work versus the single month. And the key to success is getting ahead of that month. So when you see a guy having that horrendous month, that's the guy you take a shot on, the guy that's already at rock bottom, not the guy who, you know, like right now, oh, I'm going to go pick up Chew. Well, you missed all the fun part of May because the real Chew is, is about midway in between uh, what April was and, and what May has been. But you missed all the fun. So the real key is to look at it and say, okay, this is the guy that's really stinking, but over his past 500, 600 plate appearances, he's much better. Let me go ahead and take a shot at him for June and see what happens the rest of the way. I, I, I flash back to last year. You know, in May and June, Nelson Cruz had 20 home runs in total, was doing exactly what he's doing right now. And then from June 1st on, Nelson Cruz was barely replacement level. He had 20 home runs for the final four months of the season, hit about 250. His on base was 300. He wasn't cutting it. Uh, and that's kind of thing. So players over the full season, that kind of thing can swing. But honestly, the key to success is finding the players before they get hot and dropping the guys before they get cold. Well, while we're talking about guys on the Rangers, uh, just briefly, what do you think Josh Hamilton's chances are of being useful to a fantasy owner? I'm pessimistic on that. I mean, he still can't hit lefties. That's still going to be an issue for him. It's still He's still coming off a shoulder issue, and you think about guys that in the past that have come off of shoulder problems, it, it has not worked out well for them. Um, so I'm, on, I'm really not on Team Hamilton as far as him coming back and being useful. I know some people are, are, are banking on that kind of thing. And it's not like Texas is a launching pad either. It's not the same ballpark that it used to be. They did a few things at that ballpark. There's no more jet stream to right center field. It plays more neutral. Uh, and I, don't, I really, you know, maybe Hamilton hits 10, 12 home runs the rest of the way. How pessimistic are you about personal life issues like Josh Hamilton has been wrestling with these last couple of years? And you talk to a lot of guys around baseball. Have you heard anything about the absence of uh, a mentor, for want of a better term? Remember when Johnny Oates, the former Texas manager, was kind of dragooned into service to just look after Josh Hamilton, keep him on the straight and narrow, and it really worked. And now there doesn't seem to be that kind of guy leveling him out in, in baseball. And when you add all that stuff up, what do you think are the odds of his successfully managing his personal issues? Yeah, I used to be in the camp of, you know, you, you, we're, we're both working professionals. You don't bring your personal life into the office. That said, it's almost impossible not to. 
uh, he, he, that's going to happen. And, you know, with him and, and, and hanging around the, the clubhouse the last couple of years in Tampa Bay talking to the players, I, I've switched my point of view on that. And I think even today I was reading a story uh, where Paul Molitor was giving a ton of credit to Torrey Hunter's presence in the clubhouse and the turnaround for the Twins. I mean, the Twins are annually a 90-loss team. And right now, you know, they're on pace to win 90 for the first time in a, in a while, and Torrey Hunter's having a great year. Uh, so you could look at the impact of some of the guys, the veterans, and being able to get guys on, on the right track and that kind of thing. So I definitely have switched my point of view on that where I was pretty, uh, nope, I don't care about what happens off the field in between the lines. It, that's, where it's, that's where it's at, and that's where your focus needs to be. But it's, it's impossible to shut off the, the human factor in this. So how, how do you think Josh Hamilton might be able to do? I think the support structure is in place for him. Uh, I, it's going to be, you know, obviously to me, this is a fan base that he uh, was very critical of. Uh, it wasn't a real baseball town. was a big quote he used when he left Texas and went to uh, yeah, uh, Anaheim. Right. So there's going to have to be a, uh, a forgiving moment, uh, and maybe it's his first plate appearance back because they, they, they did not treat him nicely when he came back as with the Angels. So let's see if the fans are accepting. But the support structure is definitely going to be there in place for him, uh, and that's always been critical of him. But before, way back in his prep career, I mean, his parents were everything to him and then uh, when he was raised uh, here in North Carolina and then he went to Florida and they got in a car accident on the way down to spring training uh, and then kind of things kind of started spiraling uh, away from there but support structure has always been critical in his life and when he's been good he's had the great support and Texas is ready to give it to him. You mentioned uh, in talking about Shinsu Chu that you're, you're looking at these signs and portents, uh, body of work and so forth. Is the same thing true of pitchers? Because uh, a, a month for a hitter is, you know, 100 plate appearances, but for a pitcher it's, well, it's that many batters face, but it's way fewer games. Yeah, it is, and that's really the problem. So if you look at like some of the metrics, strikeout rate, the stabilization point for a pitcher's strikeout rate, 70 batters face. So if you think the, uh, that's maybe four starts, so that gives you a little bit, if you're looking at somebody, all of a sudden got a surge in strikeout rate, we can go and say, okay, we've got 70 batters face. Let's go see what's going on. And they're like, okay, this is legit. This wasn't just a, like a, a guy striking out 12-1 performance uh, like Pineda. I mean, Pineda earned his, his 16 strikeout performance, and then he goes out and strikes out one Kansas City Royal. I mean, these kinds of things happen, yeah. but I'm not talking about a Pineda. I'm talking about other, uh, other kind of pitchers. But for pitchers, again, we have 26 scoring periods. We have six months. Uh, we really don't have time to build a legitimate sample size. You have Sometimes you have to go with your gut feeling. You look at it and say, okay, there's enough here. I think there's something here. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna ride with it and go with it, or I'm gonna let somebody else take. Something you said earlier, Jason, that I like to do is to go back into the previous season, and I like to just go back far enough that I'm always looking at a season's worth. You know what I mean? So we're two months in. I'll backtrack four months into last season and make a complete season out of it year to date, and I'll. I'm not going to base my decisions entirely on that, but I think it gives me a, a pretty good handle on which way a guy is heading. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at if you look at hit rate, hit rate, the stabilization points were on. I think it's 820 plate appearances. So you need even more than a full season of work to figure out. Okay, was that 41 percent hit rate legit or was it garbage? So you need more than that. Uh, you know, Danny Santana last year with the 400 with the 40 percent hit rate that comes to mind. Uh, it's just, again, sometimes you have to look at it and, and look at it and say sometimes okay, I know what the sample size is, but I have a gut feeling or I'm in a terrible pinch and I need to pick up this guy and, and, and see what happens. Like at the beginning of the season, Paulo Orlando, nobody knew what he was going to do. And he's hitting triples all over the place, scoring runs. Now he's hitting again, uh, and he's getting more playing time than Jared Dyson, who's just riding the bench in Kansas City and, and doing nothing. And I just cut him. I had him in Tout Wars, spent 10 bucks on him, dropped him because I have Paulo Orlando. Thankfully, I was able to pick him up early in the season, and I've been riding him out because at least he's playing. I can't carry Dyson on my bench anymore because he's doing nothing. 
Well, I have Jared Dyson on my bench as well, and I'm, I have nothing better to put there for now, but ha- that has been disappointing because I was really looking at Jared Dyson to pick me up a bunch of bags, and right now all he's doing is pitching, picking up a bunch of splinters. So <laughs> you're right about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, It's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette. And Jason, as you know, during the season, I always like to get our experts to talk about some studs and duds, I call it. Um, I leave the criteria to you to determine what constitutes a stud and what constitutes a dud. If you want to explain it, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine too. But let's start with the hitters. And in the American League, who's a hitter that you would qualify as a stud? Well, you know, I mentioned Torrey Hunter earlier, and he's having a great year. But uh, I'll say Mark Teixeira, because Teixeira looked awful last year. And he was going cheap on draft day. And Teixeira's already got 13 home runs. If you drafted Teixeira figuring he'd hit 240 with 25 bombs and drive in 80s and 90. He's halfway there already, and we're only a third way through the season. So to me, it's been it's been a big surprise uh, how to share his place. It has been and a pleasant surprise too, although I have to say I don't remember seeing anybody anywhere predict this. So if somebody in your league has Mark Teixeira, don't let them strut around like they figured something out. I think it's mostly just luck if you happen to have him because at the end of the draft you're thinking, who the hell am I going to pick up to get my first base slot filled? Ah, Mark Teixeira, you know, for a buck or whatever. How about in the National League, a stud? Brandon Crawford, I mean, that's a guy, he's hitting with power this year. Uh, and Brandon Crawford's a guy that's known for his glove. He's a great glove middle infielder, and that's what his reputation has been. But that dude's hitting with power this year. And, I don't, again, I don't think anyone saw that coming. I mean, he showed a little pomp time to time in 2014, um, but I didn't see what he's coming this year. And you know he went cheap on draft day. I want to say he was a dollar player uh, in, in the mixed tout wars. I want to say in NL, maybe he was four or five bucks just because he was a regular player. But nobody saw this kind of offensive upside out of him, and he's he's been a, been a fourth there at the plate. Brandon Crawford in Tout Mixed was actually picked up as a fab bid not that long ago. I don't know if he was uh, drafted at auction and then dropped, uh, making him available for fab, but he definitely got fabbed. And I looked at him quite a long time a few weeks ago, but just at the time I had uh, Jung Ho Kang from the Pirates and I activated him to fill a roster slot, and he started performing okay, and I thought, well, I'll husband my fab resources and and lay off Crawford. I put in a modest bid, and I got badly outbid, but uh, Brandon Crawford certainly looks like a a transformed hitter, that's for sure. Uh, Going to the other side on the hitters, uh, how about an American League dud? American League dud, Runet Odor. Uh, He's in minors now. They sent him down, but he looked awful. I don't know what happened to this guy, but Odor, well, I liked what I saw of him last year, but this year, it, it, every semblance of play discipline that he had, gone. Uh, the, the last time, that his last game was against the Rays, so I happened to see it. And the first at bat, he struck out in a pitch at his eyes. The second one, he struck out in a 58-foot curveball. I mean, these are pitches that major leaguers, shoot, triple-A guys shouldn't be swinging at this. But this guy had, was absolutely pressing the plate, had nothing. And, and I know uh, Jeff Erickson paid 15 or $16 for him in Tout Wars, I want to say he was a double-digit player in, in the mixed tout war uh, draft as well. And, you know, he's in minors, and that's, that's really tough. But he looked awful to play this year. And how about a dead hitter in the National League? Uh, Mike Morse with the Marlins. I mean, this is a guy they spent money on. They wanted to put him in the cleanup spot. I was not a fan of this, of this signing from day one. I remember when it happened, I was like, yeah, you know, and when Paul Spore and I were doing our labor planning, I was like, we need to go get Martin Prado because I think that guy's going to end up getting clean for the Marlins. Because I have no, I have no trust in Mike Morse, and Mike Morse looks his bat looks slow. Now, to his credit, I would say this though, um, you know, there was a point with Mike Morse when he was playing with Baltimore, looked lost, the bat speed looked slow, ended up going to the Giants, and then he started hitting. 
Uh, so maybe he's going through one of those things again. But the, what I've seen of Mike Morris' plate this year has not looked good. Jason Collette's uh, hitters, the stud hitter in the American League, Mark Teixeira in the National League, Brandon Crawford. His dud hitters, uh, Rugnet Odor from Texas and Mike Morris of the, Nash, of the uh, Marlins, I should say. Let's move over to the mound. Jason, in the American League, who's a pitcher you like as a stud? I think this goes right back to what my other stuff I'm talking about. You know, Chris Young with the Kansas City Royals. Everything about Chris Young screams stay away. I mean, he, he barely breaks glass with his fastball, an extreme fly ball pitcher. But Chris Young, as everybody keeps dismissing him, he keeps getting it done this year. And you look at everything, though, it's all going to, you have to think this is all going to fall apart. The strand rate's close to 90%. His home run to fly ball ratio is 2%. This is a guy that gives up 70%, you know, uh, 70% non ground balls. Uh, so you would have to figure these line drives and fly balls are going to start carrying further. But he pitches in front of a very, very, very good defense in Kansas City, uh, and that cannot be underrated. I think it's a perfect fit for him in that regard. Everything about when you watch Chris Young pitch, you see the scouting report like, yeah, this is not going to work, but Chris Young is out there just continuing to put up quality start after quality start, defying the odds. And, again, that's a guy that I, I remember looking at in the free agent pile when he first came up, and I was like, no, not going down that route because of how he finished last year. Now, is it sustainable for the full year? I don't think so, because we saw what happened last year in Seattle with it. But a lot of people who jumped on Chris Young when he first came up are enjoying the free free labor. Yeah, and it's a an interesting turn of events when a pitcher finds himself uh, on a team that seems to match his abilities insofar as defensive capabilities are concerned and the shape of the park. Chris Young, that's a that's a really good park for fly ball pitchers, uh, has been historically, and sometimes it's just a question of finding the right place to play. It really is. I mean, Seattle, you would think, was a good place, but they don't have the outfield defense, and that's what, that's what there in Kansas City, the ballpark and the guys shacking down the fly balls. How about in the National League, a stud pitcher? Down the Mark Teixeira line, the old, the old faithful, A.J. Burnett. You, just him getting out of Philadelphia, you knew this was going to be a good place for him. This goes right along the Chris Young uh, line. This was a good fit for him defensively. A.J. Uh, AJ Burnett, ground ball guy, Pittsburgh specializes in defensive positioning and everything. You knew him coming back over was going to be a good fit for him. You look at the ERA, you look at the whip, you look at the strikeouts, everything's in line with him right now. And you could get, you, for, you got him for next to nothing on draft day. And he's right now, he's a top 10 pitcher by fantasy value in the NL. Before the year, I, I emailed Ron Chandler and a few other guys at Baseball HQ and I said, look, I'm going to be in the tout mixed. Who's a end game guy I can grab? And Chandler said, Put it in the book. A.J. Burnett's going to have a good year. And uh, unfortunately, in the end game, somebody thought a dollar more of him than I could than I could go. Yeah, it was a terrific pick, and uh, I wish I had him on my roster, that's for sure. Turning around to the other side in the American League, who's a pitcher you look at and say, dud? Chris Tillman, before we talked about earlier. I mean, really, I can't think of anybody else who, who's been more of a disappointment. I mean, Tillman was, as I mentioned, when Paul and I were differencing, uh, different, uh, being a difference of opinion on, on Buckholz, he was like Tillman. I'm like Buckholz, and he wouldn't even let me take Buckholz in labor. We ended, I think we ended up taking Tillman. Uh, but if you look at Tillman, it's just a disappointment because of the growth he had made the last couple of years, and how he's given it all back this year. And finally, in the National League, a pitcher who's a dud? Uh, I just mentioned his name a minute ago, Matt Garza. You look at Garza, his, his strikeout rate is down for the fifth consecutive year. He's down in the mid-sixes now. Uh, and that's below what you need. Starting pitcher, you got to be at seven. It should be rosterable. And this guy's at six four, six five per nine right now. And now he can't throw strikes. You know, his, his strike percentage is down. His walk rate is, is up over four. 
Um, and this is, I, this is why I was always concerned about Matt Garza's future because he leans on that slider so heavily and that death by slider and all the pitches he's thrown, I think it's finally caught up with him because this is not a pitcher that I want on any of my team right now. Yeah, I agree with you about Matt Garza, boy. Uh, how the mighty fall, and it's uh, in, it it oftentimes comes quickly, but in Garza's case, it came gradually and incrementally, like the old uh, boiling a frog sort of situation. And unfortunately for him, I believe next this this offseason his free agent offseason. And you never know, somebody might pay for the name or something like that. It happens in fantasy sometimes. Uh, Jason Collette's pitchers, a uh, stud pitcher in the American League, Chris Young in the National, A.J. Burnett. His duds are Chris Tillman in the AL and Matt Garza in the National League. Uh, geez, Jason, this has been a real pleasure. Tell us where Baseball HQ Radio listeners can read more and keep up with Jason Collette. Sure. As you mentioned earlier, the uh, Collette Calls uh, column at Rotowire, which comes out over the weekend, because uh, uh, I do have a day job that keeps me extremely busy, so I'm very quiet during the day, but I'm active at night. Uh, so you can follow me on Twitter, at Jason Collette. There's two L's, there's two T's, and there's the uh, silent E at the end, which will keep you away from the Canadian independent musician uh, who right. knows nothing about fantasy baseball. <laughs> uh, but make sure you put that E on the end so you can find that. And then on uh, Sunday nights, Paul Spore and I record the Sleeper in the Bus podcast uh, over at Fangraphs. He does that with you know, Saras during the weeks on Tuesday and Thursdays, and then I am the Sunday co-host. Keeping you busy, and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. I hope we can catch up with you again uh, one more time during this season. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on again. Jason Collette writes for Rotowire and does a podcast from Fangraphs. You heard about his Twitter feed, at Jason Collette. Two L's, two T's, silent E. Make sure you get that silent E. It's kind of like Joe Sheehan's underscore. You don't, otherwise, you end up with some guy in St. Louis uh, who likes baseball, but he's no expert. <laughs> Next up are Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, and Frequent Flyers coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a foul. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is standing by to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content like our regular daily playing time today columns, where this week analysts have looked at the return of Josh Hamilton to Texas and David Wright's Aiken back. Our starting pitcher's buyer's guide column, where this week Stephen Nickrand looks at pitchers showing big skills changes from last season to this, and Matt Cedarholm's Market Pulse column, which has horrendous puns in the titles, and looks at A.J. Ramos, Delino DeShields Jr. And by the way, I watched him on Sunday Night Baseball, and he can really run. Enrique Burgos and several others. BaseballHQ.com updates its content every day across a wide range of great information and tools, like our Buyer's Guide Skills Assessment columns, performance validation in facts and flukes, roster changes in playing time today and tomorrow, daily matchups, team coverage, minor league scouting, as well as our projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league. And it's all only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is BaseballHQ.com. 
Time now for our regular Tuesday commentaries. Ryan Bloomfield is moving this weekend, and so he's taking the week off from Baseball HQ Radio, but we do have frequent flyers comment coming up and leading off it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Rocky shortstop prospect Trevor Story is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. With the Troy Tulowitzki trade rumors beginning to heat up again, it's a good time to take a look at the Rockies' long-term options if, in fact, the veteran is traded. Long-term, the most likely beneficiary would be the 23-year-old Trevor Story. Story was the 45th overall pick in the 2011 draft and has since then been one of the streakiest players in the minors. After a solid full-season debut, Story hit just 233 with 12 home runs in the hitter-friendly Cal. He also struck out a jaw-dropping 183 times in 497 at-bats, causing some to wonder if he was yet another Rockies draft bust. Story bounced back the following season, hitting 332 and 164 at-bats, earning him a mid-season jump to AA. But once he moved up, he hit just 200 with 82 strikeouts and 205 at-bats. Story has gotten off to a red-hot start in 2015, hitting 331 with a 430 on base percentage and a very nice 581 slugging percentage. He has 13 doubles and 6 home runs and 148 AA at-bats. He does have good raw power, but he struggles to make consistent contact, which raises serious concerns about his ability to hit for average and reach his full potential. Defensively, Story has decent range and good hands, but lacks the arm strength and flair for the dramatic that Tulowitzki brings to the table. If Tulowitzki is eventually traded, Trevor Story is not likely to make Rocky fans or fantasy owners forget about Tulowitzki anytime soon. But any shortstop with above-average power, especially one who plays in Coors Field, is worth keeping an eye on. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. And we know the sound quality on that segment was not everything we'd like it to be. We'll get that fixed for you by next week. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Chris Maloney, Colby Garropy, Nick Richards, Matthew St. Germain, Brent Hershey, and Alec Dopp have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage continues with call-ups, including Tampa left-hander Eni Romero, Dodgers catcher Austin Barnes, San Francisco right-hander Hunter Strickland, Yankees left-hander Jacob Lindgren, and many more. We also have a watch list report identifying players who could get the call-up any day now. In our latest edition, they look at Houston shortstop Carlos Correa, Cubs third baseman Javier Baez, pitchers Brian Johnson of the Red Sox and Eric Johnson of the White Sox, as well as many others. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers, Mike Wright, Chad Bettis, and Peter O'Brien. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky, Who is the first pitcher in Orioles history to not allow a run or a walk in his Major League debut? Do you have the right answer? Of course you do. It's Mike Wright, who struck out Mike Trout in the first inning of his Major League debut on May 17th against the Angels, on his way to pitching seven scoreless innings with six strikeouts. So what would he do for an encore? How about another seven-inning scoreless performance against the Miami Marlins last Saturday? Although he issued three walks and three hits as second appearance, he still did not allow a run and became the Orioles' first starter since 1978 to begin his Major League career with at least 14 scoreless innings. 
Wright struck out 37 batters and walked eight over his final seven appearances at AAA Norfolk in 2014 for a 4.6 command ratio while compiling a 4-2 record with a .95 ERA. In fact, last season, from August 10th through August 29th, he didn't allow a single earned run, including taking a no-hitter into the ninth inning at Durham on August 21st. This season, prior to his May 17th call-up, Wright was 3-0 with a 2.64 ERA. While most of your league continues to focus on Baltimore's Dylan Bundy and Kevin Gosman, perhaps now is a great time to grab Mike Wright based upon his latest performance last Saturday. Another pitcher who performed admirably over the Memorial Day weekend was Colorado's Chad Bettis. After San Francisco's Nori Aoki led off the game at Coors Field with a single to center, Bettis didn't allow another hit until Matt Duffy singled to right in the eighth inning. In fact, Bettis didn't allow a base runner past first base until the ninth inning. He walked two and struck out seven against a Giants lineup that leads the National League in runs scored in May by effectively mixing his fastball, sitting at 93 to 94 miles an hour, but occasionally touching 96, along with a good changeup, curve, and slider. But he did give up two earned runs on four hits in the ninth as his pitch count surpassed 100. Given that his longest outing of the season had been six innings, and that the Rockies staked him to an 11 to nothing lead with three outs to go, his ninth inning struggles were not surprising. What is surprising, though, is that Bettis appears to pitch better at home, in Coors Field, a place not necessarily known as a pitcher's park. So far, Bettis has uh, compiled a 3.14 ERA at home and a 7.20 ERA on the road. His extreme split serves as an excellent reminder that Bettis, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots, but maybe worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Finally, our last frequent flyer is Diamondbacks catcher Peter O'Brien. Ranked in the top five in each of the Triple Crown categories of the Pacific Coast League, O'Brien is currently batting 344 through 40 games with 11 home runs and 44 RBI. Playing primarily in left field at Reno, Arizona's AAA affiliate, O'Brien may soon qualify at both catcher and outfield in many leagues. Plus, with those numbers, he has a pretty good shot of being called up to the majors in the near future. And if you want a pretty good shot of winning your league, consider adding Mike Wright, Chad Bettis, and Peter O'Brien, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers here on Baseball HQ Radio on Tuesday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, May the 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 29 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday edition of the show, Jason Collette from rotowire.com. And it's always a great pleasure to talk with Jason. He's very busy on Twitter, and I highly recommend his Twitter feed, at Jason Collette. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. Our frequent flyers commentator was Alex Becky. Our playing time commentator, Ryan Bloomfield, will be back again next week. I'm Patrick Davitt. I have a Facts and Flukes spotlight on the site right now on Los Angeles Angels outfielder Cole Calhoun. In the meantime, I also hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and be the first to know when a new Baseball HQ radio podcast is available. 
More importantly, though, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Get them listening. And take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with our regular News and Notes edition featuring Todd Zola. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.